Hello and welcome to episode 16 of the Media Curious Off Message podcast. The first not to be recorded face to face, but given the ongoing COVID-19 restrictions over the internet via a website called Clean Feed. Big thanks to Brian Green for the heads up on this. My guest for this online chat was Managing Director of RTE News and Current Affairs, John Williams, during which he told me about the huge work changes the state broadcaster has implemented to keep their show as safely as possible on the road, how they're dealing with their employees' mental health in this unprecedented crisis, the pandemic's enormous financial impact on all media organisations, his own pre-RTE work experience, much of which brought him to some of the world's most dangerous hotspots, Sean O'Rourke's recent impending RTE Radio 1 retirement announcement and loads more. Enjoy. John, uh, thank you for uh, taking this over the internet call. Uh, Normally I do off-message podcasts face-to-face, but we're now experimenting with, um, well, new technology to me. Um, Welcome to Off-Message. Thanks, Pat. Good to be with you. It's funny. We, 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 we last year, was it? Was it a, a BAI thing? I said, I want to uh, interview right. you for off message and we never got it together. And now circumstances have changed where uh, in a way, I'm glad I didn't uh, interview you <laughs> way back then, because now we have so much more to talk about, specifically because of COVID-19 and the whole coronavirus thing. Um, I wrote about it in the last blog post uh, at Off Message, just in general about how uh, work practices had changed. How is it inside in your department, in news and current affairs uh, in RTE? When did the changes start? When did you start planning? And what are you doing? So, look, our our, um, planning really began at the beginning of March, where uh, we decided to... Uh, send a number of people out of the building and and, and not have them come back um, and essentially split uh, the newsroom into two separate teams uh, on opposite shifts to try to uh, limit the uh, risk of of cross-infection so that if uh, one person got it, the whole team then then didn't go down with COVID-19. And uh, it, it is extraordinary that uh, in any newsroom, you know, it, it, they thrive on being busy. And because of uh, uh, social distancing, um, every second desk in the newsroom is now closed, mm. which means that uh, there is just a very strange atmosphere. The reporters don't come into the newsroom. Uh, all of uh, Morning Island is now done uh, from outside the building, um, apart from the uh, the team who are actually uh, putting the program out. But the presenters, all the contributors, uh, are outside. Um, and even in the in the control rooms, there are now perspex screens between uh, the individuals because oh, wow. uh, there are some some places where we simply cannot maintain the two meter uh, social distance which means that we then have to put other mitigations uh, in place to keep people safe. And that's, that has been the, the key priority, is, is the welfare of, 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 of everybody who works for RT News and Current Affairs. Uh, because 
in the end, um, we are an essential service. We need to have people coming into work, uh, but it's understandable that they should be concerned about their safety and and concerned about their family's safety mm. as well. So mm. uh, we've tried to uh, to manage that as best we can. Wow. Um, I did see uh, a tweet from Anthony Murnane, um, one of your uh, news producer editors, um, mm. a, a while back, uh, showing a picture of the newsroom, and it was spookily empty. Yeah. Well, it, it's um, you know, we have uh, some uh, of the staff literally working from home, but on a on a big screen, uh, so that they are uh, a virtual desk essentially. Um, but you know, people can go up to the television and talk to them, and they can talk back. Um, it, it is extraordinary, really, uh, what technology has allowed us to do. Uh, I, I think even you know a couple of years ago, it would have been very difficult for us. That was going uh, to be yeah. That was going to be my this. next question. Um, I remember my mum said to me a while back, "Isn't it lucky this didn't happen fifty years ago when we were all kids? We'd have driven her bananas, um, uh, you know, cocooned in 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 the homestead." But with you guys um, in broadcasting, particularly uh, across television and, and radio, you couldn't have done this fifteen years ago. Oh, Certainly not uh, twenty let, years ago. I, I, I'm not sure we could have done it five years. Ago. Hmm. You know, the uh, the lift, uh, and I have to pay tribute to the sort of backroom team, uh, the technology team at RTE, who in the space of two weeks, essentially, um, fitted out the equivalent of, of probably a dozen radio studios uh, in people's homes for uh, Morning Island, for all of the other Radio 1 programs, for 2FM. Um, and and then ensured that everybody who is working from home could get onto the RT system without it falling over. Mm. And that is quite an achievement. Um, and I should say as well, you know, at the same time, standing up a uh, an area uh, that is sanitized uh, within RTE and is, is now shut in case we need to evacuate the newsroom. So in the event of wow. somebody contracting yeah. COVID-19, um, we have a, a essentially a mirror newsroom that is uh, waiting to be activated. Um, and hopefully and, never will be. Well, and hopefully never will be. But, mm. um, you know, a lot of thought uh, went into, into all of the preparations led by um, my deputy, Hilary McGurran, who, who um, spent a lot of time uh, just thinking the impossible mm. and um, about how we could uh, do what we do in a completely different way. And the the response of the team, I have to say, has been extraordinary. It's funny. Uh, the last time I was in working in uh, RTE was in early March. I produced on Liveline for a few days. And I think back to the innocence of it all uh, at one stage I think on my last day there, someone came around and gave us all these wipes and we cleaned down mm. our desk and uh, the, the mm. keyboard on the PC and the telephone. And I just think, mm. wow, how things have moved on since then so quickly. Well, they, 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 to some extent they have, but, but you know, those are still the basic protocols. They're the equivalent of 
the wash your hands, wash your hands, wash your hands that Joe mm. Duffy goes on about. And, you know, as much as uh, we have a responsibility to keep people safe, individuals also have a responsibility to to ensure that their working environment is safe, not only for them, but for their colleagues. And so, you know, the team are, are, are cleaning the desk that they sit in at the start and at the end of every shift. And um, you know, the uh, the telephones and, and, and having wipes available is, is really important in terms of reassuring mm, people mm. that um, they can operate in a safe environment. RTE is a huge organization. How did you coordinate across all the other departments as well? So uh, the Director General uh, uh, stood up a, a, um, a coordination committee, for want of a, a better term. Um, and uh, we have been meeting every day at 10.30 uh, since the beginning of March. In fact, this week is the first week where uh, we haven't met every day. Um, because I, I, I think in my own head, I, I have split this up into there was the immediate emergency. Mm-hmm. And we're now at the start of a continuing crisis. And the two things are different. And, and um, you know, it, it's a bit like playing a, a round of golf. Different clubs are needed for different holes. <laughs> well, different clubs are needed for different phases of a, mm. uh, of a, of a crisis. But, um, uh, yeah, uh, D, uh got a group of about uh, 30 people uh, together from across the organization. Um, and we just worked through uh, a list of issues um, and continue to do so. What's the, what's the impact been at the human uh, face of all this? How are people dealing with it? I haven't been in there since early March, but um, RT was going through a tough time anyway. Before all this happened, I, mind you, I've never, <laughs> I've never been in RT when it hasn't been going through one kind of tough uh, time or another. Um, how how are people dealing with it? How are they? How, what's the human impact on all this? So I I think you know it, it's easy to forget that um, in addition to coming to work and doing a job, uh, every one of my colleagues has their own issues at home whether they are um, aged parents or children with, uh, with asthma or um, you know, their own medical conditions. And you know, for a lot of people, uh, inevitably, there is fear. Uh, fear that uh, they might pick something up at work and take it home. Um, fear that uh, you know, they may not be able to see their loved ones for a a period of time. Um, But it speaks to the professionalism of the team that they leave all of that at the door uh, when they walk in and crack on and do the job. Um, But it doesn't doesn't go away. It it just means it's there waiting for them when they they go out at the end of a shift. And um, I, I think it's, it's, perfectly understandable that people should have very real concerns which is which is why um whether it's protocols around filming on location or whether it's protocols around uh how people interact and behave in the newsroom um it's really important that everybody knows what the drill is 
And is there anyone on standby to talk to people who may be going through uh, mental health difficulties or just issues uh, of it all getting too much? Well, you know, that's the job of 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 the management team. Um, mm. You know, I, I, I think, um, you know, when, when I was at the BBC, um, there's a, a fantastic organisation called the Dart Centre, uh, which specialises in in the mental health of journalists. And, you know, um, journalists are funny creatures. I, 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 I think I'm allowed to say that because I am one, <laughs> both, both a journalist and a funny creature. But, but you know, we are, um, we are skeptical at best. And so, um, you know, if somebody was to come along and, um, you know, essentially try and do social work in the newsroom, um, I, I suspect uh, they'd probably get pretty short shrift. But actually, um, you know, having another journalist, whether that's a manager or a colleague, uh, lend an ear, uh, is incredibly important. Mm. And so um, one of the things that uh, the Dart Centre helped us develop at the BBC and then actually the British military was um, something called trauma risk management. And that's about training up peers to be the uh, the shoulder to cry on or the the listening right. ear, gotcha. rather than it being external professionals. Gotcha. And yeah. you know that's because of our the idiosyncrasies that we journalists have. That um, you know we're probably more likely to uh, to listen to and to um, to understand and appreciate something that one of our own says than, than somebody who uh, who's wearing a, a white coat or is, um, you know, a, 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 trained, a trained psychotherapist. An outsider, yeah. It's funny you say that because as recently as 2003, which is, what, 17 years ago, um, when we made Reporters at War, uh, a history of modern war journalism for discovery, back then journalists' attitude to mental health was yeah. dismissive. It, it was changing. Sure. It was changing. But I'll, I'll be honest with you, Pat. You know, it's something that I have been very open about, and you know, my own family has has had mental health issues. And when I was at the BBC, um, you know, we were at the height of the wars in Iraq and in Afghanistan, and uh, somebody very close to me. Uh, suffered a, a, a breakdown and uh, I was honest about the the issues that, that, that I was going through and, and by being honest it allowed other people then also to be honest hmm. and so we had a, a, a sort of spate of, um, of PTSD uh, cases come forward uh, a number of people were hospitalized for a period of time uh, but the first person who uh, was honest and came forward and got treatment and then went on to do another job and got a promotion that it wasn't seen as holding them back. Okay. Suddenly, okay. actually, everybody thought, oh, it's fine, I can be honest. And, yeah, yeah. and I just think um, that is so important that, mm. um, you know, for, for, for too long, it, it was a almost a, an embarrassing uh, uh, condition, and people didn't want to 
to admit that there was a, an issue because they feared that it might damage their careers. Sure, and, sure. and why should it? You know, if you have a broken leg, it doesn't damage your career. If yeah. you've got a broken mind, then nor should it damage your career. Yeah, the broken leg is visible. Everyone can see Absolutely. that, you know, uh, yeah. mental health isn't. Um, and it's only right and proper that you guys look after uh, your uh, employees. Um, what about the financial impact? I mean, advertising has uh, fallen off a cliff. Um, if you look at RT television now, when they go to an ad break, it's it's mostly uh, COVID-19 messages. So they're paid for by the government and then promos for upcoming programs. So and I remember the same thing happened when I was in London in 2008 with the uh, recession, the crash then and TV advertising, radio advertising, all media advertising fell off a cliff and just suddenly was non-existent. You guys have had to, if you're building a second newsroom, um, yeah, for on standby, if you're now putting studios in people's homes uh, and so on, you're spending a lot more money. So how does that play into your planning and your long term thinking? Well, so look, you know, I, I, I don't want anybody to think that RTE is any different to any other part of the media industry. Um, every section, section, section of our industry is struggling right now, mm. uh, whether that's newspapers, whether that's local radio, um, or whether it's, it's, it's television. And of course, it's a concern that um, depending uh, uh, on, on who you believe, um, advertising is down between 35 and 60%. Wow. Well, that's a lot of money. Yeah. And, um, you know, in the end, um, uh, that there has to be something that gives, and uh, or, or um, we're able to get money from 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 elsewhere. So um, it is a very real concern, but it's no more of a concern for RTE than it is for any of our other colleagues in in the media business, not just in Ireland but around the world. Hmm. Um, I I assume. You guys have a slight advantage of being a public service broadcaster. So through the license fee, you know, there is funding there. Um, although we remember what happened well, again in 08 when that decreased well, uh, hugely and, as well. Uh, and you know, if um, so, around 40% of license fees are paid over the counter at the post office. Well, if people aren't going outside their mm. homes, they're not going to the post office and they're not paying over their licenses. Yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, for, um, for us at the moment, it's a bit of a, um, and, and the issue is, is, is that a, just a time lag? So, you know, when uh, the restrictions are, are released, um, will license fee sales return to what they, what they were expected to be? Um, but you'd have to also factor in the fact that you know, a million people are now uh, dependent on some form of state financing mm. uh, to make ends meet, whether that's unemployment, whether that's the wage subsidy scheme. Um, and, and in the end, there are going to be uh, people who just think if it comes to a choice between um, 
putting a meal on the table or paying mm. their license fee, they're going to prioritize putting a meal on their table. Mm. So um, we're in a, um, a bit of a perfect storm. But as I say, um, so too is everybody else in the media industry. And um, you know, I think one of the, the issues for all of us really is, is um, how we stabilize uh, this business which is so important, particularly at a time like this, um, where you know we we in, we're in this curious situation where uh, more people than ever before are watching, reading, and listening to what we do, but it's earning us less money than we've mm. ever had. I saw an interesting article recently about how advertisers. Uh, in the immediate breakout of the pandemic, um, uh, refused to put their ads on news stories about the coronavirus, which is actually where most of the eyeballs were online. It, it, the most read stories were generating the least income. Right. So I, uh, the, the way things work is, is we have a commercial department that deals with, uh, uh, with all of the, uh, the commercial sales. Mm. Um, I don't have anything to do with uh, with um, uh, the the selling of, of of what we do. I uh, I joke with my colleagues that the currency that I'm interested in is reputation. Um, so um, I need to earn reputation uh, through what we do. Sure. Um, others need to earn um, cents and euros. Um one of the things that intrigues me about it all at the moment are the the new work practices, especially the working from home. Um, yeah. uh, how much of these, now that they've been forced upon us, do you think perhaps in the long term may actually become standard work practices? I, I'm sure that some of them will. I, I, I couldn't tell you which ones will. Hmm. Um but uh, I think you know, for particularly people who are commuting you know, 90 minutes into Dublin and then 90 minutes home, um, you could understand that suddenly they've got three hours of their life back mm -hmm. and every day. And uh, they're not going to be desperately keen to go back to uh, <laughs> sitting in a car and sitting on the M50 for, uh, for hours at a time again. Um, but at the end of the day, so much of what we do is, is about people. And um, while you know, take Morning Island, for example, you know, the team are doing an incredible job presenting the program from uh, cupboards, living rooms, um, kitchens, <laughs> uh, and interviewing people remotely. Mm. But at the end of the day, there is the, the best interviews are face to face because exactly. you can yeah. see the whites of somebody's yeah, yeah. eyes, yeah, yeah, and that isn't going to change after all this is is over. Mm. And we will go back to having presenters in the studio interviewing guests in the mm -hmm. studio because that's the best way for us to get the best interview. But I'm, I imagine a lot of the music DJs are going. Why do I need to go into RT and do my show from you know? my living room, my bedroom, yeah. whatever. So yeah. that might change. Also, I'm thinking about um, media organizations who are suddenly looking at half empty offices going, well, if we could downsize and we'd save on rent and save on utilities, et cetera, et cetera. So it must be going through their head as well. Yeah, although, you know, there are then um, 
you know, organizations who uh, essentially uh, are employing people working from home then have an obligation to make sure that the working environment at home is safe and uh, unsatisfactory. Mm. Um, I, I actually think working from home is, um, is really tough. You know, I, I um, just a, a, another anecdote for a second. Um, so I was the, the BBC's foreign editor for seven years. And uh, the first uh, overseas trip I made in 2006 as foreign editor was to Baghdad. And uh, it was the height of the Iraq war. And uh, we, had, we had had a house in Baghdad for quite a long time. That, that functioned as both the um, uh, the office, but also the bedrooms. And I, I, I just thought it was an incredibly unhealthy way uh, for people to exist because mm. um, they were essentially working all the hours God sent and just going into their bedrooms to sleep, as opposed to, uh, and in the end, uh, we moved the bedrooms into a house over the street. So people had a commute across the road. Yes. Yeah, so yeah, actually yeah, yeah. when they walked through the door of the, of the, the, the house where the bedrooms were, mm. they could, their shoulders could drop and suddenly, you know, that was home. And then in the morning they'd get up and commute across the road and go into the bureau, which was work yeah, yeah, and separating. Yeah, yeah. And, and we did the same in, 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 uh, Kabul in the end, we built an office at the end of the garden. So there's actually people ah, commuted down okay. the garden. Yeah, yeah. So there was a place that was clearly defined as work and a place that was clearly defined as home. And uh, being able to compartmentalize things like that, I think, is, is incredibly important psychologically. And I, I, um, I would just have a concern about... Uh, lots of people working from home because um, suddenly your home becomes the office mm. and the place that is a sanctuary um, is no longer a sanctuary. So I, I, I do think it's, it's incredibly tough mm. um, uh, for people to work and, uh, and you know, uh, have homes in the same place. I think it'll be a mix. I can see it where people might work a couple of days, you know, off base. But yeah. the, the other thing, yeah. of course, is that some of your best ideas are ones that you have over coffee with your colleagues when you're right. telling them about how they're, you're doing something and they suggest something that and, you had never thought of. We are social. We are social animals. Mm. And, you know, being able to uh, to Josh and to um, to rib colleagues um is incredibly important, and uh, you know, a, a, a number of people have have said to me how much they are missing the company of their colleagues. You know, certain individuals, we we just need to look after to make sure that they they don't get sick. So yeah. they haven't been in the office since the beginning of March. Um, so, but that's very hard when you've 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 had a you know, 20, 30 year career of coming into to, mm. to the newsroom every day and then suddenly you're not. It must be odd for uh, primetime. Dave was telling, Dave McCullough was telling me that Miriam and himself are never in the same room at the same time. Yeah. 
Well, you know, and, and the logic behind that is clearly that um, if one became ill, there would then be a risk that the other became ill. You know, we have a responsibility as best we can to make sure for the audience that either Dave or Miriam are there. And mm. if one of them goes sick, the other can step up. When he told me, I hadn't even thought about it, but it made complete sense. One of the things I, 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 I think that a few people have said it to me, and I had intended to <laughs> mention it in the blog post about you know how the media was coping with uh, the coronavirus, and then because uh, I'm human, I forgot. Was um, there's people have you noticed this? But a few people have said it to me that people are now valuing RT and the BBC in the UK. They're valuing public service broadcasting now more than ever. Uh, well, to be honest, Pat, I think that's a question for for others rather than me. But certainly, in terms of uh, the audience numbers, uh, but also the um, you know, like any organisation, we we do polling, and and um, there was a, a behaviour and attitudes poll of uh, survey of, of just over a thousand people, and eighty two percent of people. Uh, put RTE uh, as the place that they were following uh, the coronavirus as their, their sort of main news outlet. Um, and I think you know, at times like this, uh, people want trusted brands, whether that's RTE or the Irish Independent or the, the Irish Times or, or, or the Journal. I, I, I don't pretend that, that RTE is, is unique in that. But the advantage that we have is that it is um, it's almost the the default setting for for a lot of people um, in the you know when when they want to know what's going on. You know, I, I, I joke that um, uh, when I was uh, in the United States, the evening news if it got a two percent share, um, that was a good night. Uh, last wow. night, six one got a fifty percent share. Wow. So that means that. Um, half of those people watching television were watching 6-1. So Ireland is one of the only places in the world where the traffic still stops at six o'clock and people um, uh, you know, tune in to get the, the news headlines. It doesn't happen in many places. Mm. Um, it does still happen here. I'm going to put my hand up at uh, six o'clock. The television comes on and it comes on because of the news. Um, uh, right. So you know, I I, I understand that one. Um, I, I want you've already mentioned your time at the BBC and at ABC, and I want to talk about that in uh, in a while um, because I think it's important. Um, but let's stick with uh, COVID just for a minute. Um, I've seen a lot of social media shout-outs from journalists, especially from journalists, going, "It's important that in these tough times you support journalism." And please buy a newspaper, uh, take out a subscription or whatever. I'm not sure. I don't know if you read what I uh, wrote in the blog post. I'm not sure about those shout outs um, because a lot of what the media do isn't worth supporting. Um, and sure, there are, there are gems in there. Um, I, I, I wonder how, how, how do you feel about them, those shout outs? Well, look, in, in, in the end, um... Quality journalism costs money. And um, if we're not prepared to uh, support quality journalism in whatever form, then 
we will live with the consequences. And uh, the, the most significant consequence is there will be fewer journalists. Mm -hmm. There will be fewer newspapers, local radio stations, uh, television stations, and less scrutiny of uh, uh, people making decisions. So, uh, you know, journalism is a public good and uh, we need to pay for it. However we pay for it, whether that's through commercials or whether that's through um, you know, something like the, the license fee or a, uh, or a broadcasting charge, whatever it is, um, quality journalism costs money. And uh, you know, so the journal.ie um, launched a, uh, a campaign to, to raise money. And um, you know, it might sound odd, given that they are one of our competitors, uh, but I was proud to to you know chip in uh, some money to uh, to support the journal because I think uh, we are all better for competition mm. and the journal .ie makes RTE better um, and you know I, I think uh, we have already lost too many journalists jobs in Ireland and we can't afford to lose any more and I think. Um, uh, if people don't want to support journalism, whether that's by buying a newspaper or whether that is by supporting uh, something like the, the journal.ie, then uh, we will live with the consequences of that. Mm. There's also the argument, of course, that much of what is quality journalism is surrounded by throwaway nonsense um, and, and business propaganda, because obviously if you're supported by advertising... I'm always intrigued. But the audience are not stupid. But, but the audience are not stupid, Pat. They know uh, when uh, uh, you know something is is Pucker and, and, and the real McCoy. Mm. Um, you only have to look at the audiences for uh, RT Investigates to see that when uh, uh, journalists invest in uh, something like undercover journalism. Uh, telling stories that really matter, uh, the audience respond in droves. The audience also buy some awful newspapers that uh, are full of celebrity tittle-tattle and, right. you know, football news and celebrities so and free, whatever. But it's so, a free country. Yeah, they're, they're, entitled yeah. to buy, they're entitled to buy Sure. That. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. And, and, you know, the, um, the, the first lesson I learned, uh, so when I was... Uh, 18 years old, I pushed trolleys for Sainsbury's. And uh, the, uh, the first lesson that you learned at Sainsbury's was the customer is always right. And uh, when we start blaming the audience, we've got it wrong. You know, the audience is not wrong. So if they are buying uh, those sorts of newspapers, well, they're entitled to buy those sorts of newspapers. Mm. And, and buying those sorts of newspapers allows those newspapers to do, you know, in amidst all of the other things, um, maybe some decent journalism. But that would be decent journalism that wouldn't uh, mm. uh, see the light of day if people weren't buying them. Yeah, it's an interesting argument. And uh, I, I wanna, I, I wrestle with regularly, um, and we're not going to sort it here. Um, since the outbreak of COVID, has your own personal media consumption changed? Um, 
Yes, I think it probably has in that um, because uh, you know, I'm also spending less time uh, in the office um, just because there's, um, I also want to make sure that I don't get sick. Um, so we're limiting you know, our own interactions. So you know, our morning conference, which we used to have uh, in a conference room is now held on Zoom. Uh, and we have 35, 40 people um, uh, joining on Zoom. Uh, I will do that probably from the house before I go into uh, to the office a few mornings a week. Um, and then uh, I will often now be back at home in time to watch 6-1 rather than uh, watching it in the newsroom with everybody else. Um, I also think people are probably getting up later than they uh, than they did when they had to um, commute into work. Mm. So you know, I know I am. Uh, uh, I, I might still wake up at seven o'clock in the morning, but I listen to um, the first part of Morning Island in bed rather than <laughs> you know uh, uh, doing my morning ablutions. <laughs> I did hear so, uh, something on the radio the other morning about electricity consumption, and it now peaks later in the morning because people aren't getting right. up as early as they yeah. were. What about uh, print? What about, um, do you read newspapers? Do you subscribe online? Has that changed? Well, that hasn't changed. I um, I, I do read all, I, I, I don't get a hard copy, but I do, um, I, I get an electronic copy of them, uh, of both the Irish Times and the uh, and the Indo, um, and, and the Times Island edition. So um, those are, um, and uh, I, I guess I'm probably pretty unusual in in still, uh, uh, you know, my morning routine probably hasn't changed in thirty years. Man of habits. Uh, it, it's it's just it's it's just the uh, just the products change in terms of what I'm reading, but uh, but the habit of reading is um, is incredibly important. And the products change, uh, which is a nice segue, uh, depending on where you are. And you uh, are three years in RTE. Uh, before that, the BBC and ABC. Tell me about what what brought you to RTE in the first place? They asked. Um, <laughs> so um, there I was uh, sitting in New York one day and I got a phone call. You were at ABC and at that stage, were you? I was, yeah. And... Um, you know, it wasn't. Uh, it, it's funny. You know, when I when I first got here, uh, people said to me, "Why would you want to come to RTE?" Mm -hmm. um, uh, you might find it hard to believe, but when I went to ABC, people said to me, "Why would you leave the BBC <laughs> to come to ABC?" You know, everybody seems to have a bit of a a downer on 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 the place that they that they that they work and. Um, you know, my answer as to why I came to RTE is I can probably count on the fingers of a little over two hands uh, the news organizations in the world where you're doing radio, television, and online in English uh, for um, you know, a, a mass market audience. Mm. And, um, you know, that is uh, a pretty small club. So to be running a news organization doing radio, TV, and online um, in English, um, I, I, I say I, I think it probably amounts to twelve, if you if you maybe fifteen, not many more than 
15. Uh, so um, it was an opportunity that was too good to miss. A lot of your work has been, as you discussed earlier, out in the field running bureaus in, well, places where there was conflict, where there was war. How did that happen? I was a TV producer and uh, you know, I, I was a BBC graduate trainee. I then went uh, to Leeds and ended up running the regional news operation in Leeds. Uh, and then at the age of 30, went to be part of the launch team for Channel 5 when that launched and then went back to the BBC to, uh, to run uh, the political programs at Westminster before moving on to the six o'clock news. And then in, in 2003, after the end of the Iraq war, uh, they asked me to go and become the UK news editor. Um, and so I did that for three years, uh, coinciding with uh, the 7-7 terror attacks in London. Um, and then in 2006, I became the foreign editor and I had seven years uh, doing that. Um, probably the best job in the BBC. I, I got to travel the world um, mm. and uh, made some uh, long lasting friendships with people all over the world. It was, it was an extraordinary job. But uh, after seven years, I, uh, I, I had to be careful about who I was crossing the road with just in case they pushed me out in front of a bus. Because um, uh, after seven years, it was probably time for somebody else to have one of the best jobs in the BBC. So, um, um, but you know, it was also a uh, a very challenging time. I had a um, a colleague who was kidnapped in Gaza, and spent 114 days of my life trying to get him out alive, and uh, which we did. Um, we then had uh, the war in Syria, um, and I again had a uh, couple of colleagues who were. Uh, seized by the Syrian authorities, um, and I managed to uh, uh, prevail upon them to allow me to go and visit them in the cells underneath the courthouse in Damascus, um, wow. and we got th we got them out. Um, what was your role about the time of Simon Cumber's death? So I was the UK news editor uh, at that time, but I had to... Um, uh, so Simon uh, was with Frank Gardner when, uh, when they were shot. For those who and don't know, he, an Irish cameraman so who was, he was it, a free, yeah, I, yeah. I had met him in London, in yeah. fact, the, right. the night before he flew out. Was it to Saudi? Right. It was, uh, yeah. Yeah, he, um, he watched an Irish football game with us in a pub in Camden. Right. Um, well, the hardest thing I've ever done, Pat, was having to go round uh, to Simon's house to tell his wife mm. that Simon had been killed. And um, I then took Louise and uh, Bob and Broner, his, uh, his parents who, uh, who live in Navan, um, uh, out to Riyadh um, to bring Simon's body home. Right. Um, and for as long as I live, um, I will never forget the, um, the experience of having to go and knock on someone's door sure. and tell them that the person that they love has, has been killed uh, yeah, yeah. by terrorists in Saudi Arabia. Yeah, yeah. How's Frank this weather? He's, um, he is an extraordinary individual. He, um, um, 
goes from strength to strength and uh, where he gets the um, reserves of, of determination and courage from, uh, I, I don't know. But um, you know, it is extraordinary that it's uh, 16 years and a couple of, uh, couple of months time since, uh, since that attack in, in Riyadh in uh, June 2004. Like yesterday. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. I remember the shock as well. A friend had introduced us, and we were talking about pitching ideas together, and so on. And yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. Sad days. Um. Uh, 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 listen, no one in RT will hear this, so you can be honest with me. <laughs> how, how, how long do you plan on staying here? Oh, I've got no plans to go anywhere else. You know, <laughs> I think I think most uh, most people thought that um, you know I was there for five minutes. Uh, and here I am, nearly three and a half years later. Yeah, um, yeah. You know, how does it compare? I, um, how does it compare to what you've done before? I mean, are you desk oh, man? Oh, hardest now? thing Do I've ever feel... done. Oh, really? How come? Oh, oh, by a country mile, the hardest thing I've ever done. Um, because it matters so much. Uh, it matters to the audience. It matters uh, to the staff, and it matters to the country. Mm. Um, it's um, oh, this is this is by a country mile, the most important thing I've ever done. And you know, you just just look at what we're going through now. Um, there could not be a bigger challenge mm. than to uh, uh, have the privilege of of, of of leading RT News and Current Affairs. Uh, during a health emergency like this. It's, um, yeah, by a country mile, the hardest thing I've ever done. How long did it take people um, to forget you were a Brit? You know, people come to Ireland and um, especially in a a culturally important role, like, you know, head of news and current affairs in RTE, um, sure, what would he know? He, sure, he's a foreigner. He won't. He won't know how we do things or the way the country works, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Um, I'm tempted to say uh, three years, three months, and twenty-two days. But, you're uh, still getting uh, the hang of it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Um, like we pride ourselves on being unique and different and whatever, and sometimes I think we believe our own hype on that. But well, uh, how at, long at did it take you to get your the... feet under the table, so to speak? Well, I don't think you can ever. Um, rest easy that you've you've cracked it because um something will turn up to remind you that you do not understand this place as well as you think you did Mm. so um uh, i I don't presume anything and um, what was the most recent thing that happened that you kind of thought i still don't get this lot ireland's election system you know it's um well you know coming from a country where um People go to vote. Uh, the polls close at 10 o'clock. By 6 a.m. the following morning, everything's done and dusted, pretty much. Yeah, but that's because it's first here, past the post. It's, right, you know, of course, yeah, of course. Yeah. But then here, you know, it, it took me quite a long time right. to realize that um, Ireland's uh, single transferable vote in multi-member constituencies uh, was not a bonkers way to... Uh, to elect a parliament. Um, the fact that it goes on for days isn't a problem. It's hailed as a festival of democracy. And um, 
you know, the fact that we still don't have a government <laughs> after the best part of, uh, of, of 10 weeks. Well, it's just another dimension of that festival of democracy. Come on, um, we're in a halfpenny place compared to, was it Belgium had a longer run? Exactly. Yeah, yeah, We're only but, catching up. Um, so you, you know what they say about uh, two places separated by a common language. Well, sure. Um, yeah, yeah. Um, you're also a board member of the Committee to Protect Journalists. Um, which, again, going back to 2003, yeah. when we were doing Reporters at War, we certainly used their stats a lot and, you know, we picked their brains uh, a lot on, on, on content. Um, what, what, what's your role there? What does that involve? So uh, after Alan, when Alan Johnson was kidnapped in Gaza in 2007, um, you know, it's hard to think back to what life was like then. But it was very unusual for journalists to be targeted by terrorists and uh, the the guy who was the uh, chair of, of CPJ at that guy at that time was a guy called Paul Steiger who was the um, executive editor of the um, of, of the Wall Street Journal and in 2001 Daniel Pearl who was the Wall Street Journal's correspondent in Pakistan had right. been kidnapped and beheaded That's by right. al-Qaeda and Paul had uh, had a lot of experience dealing with uh, uh, Danny's family, uh, but also just the uh, the experience of how you manage a crisis uh, in a newsroom uh, mm -hmm. where all of his colleagues are looking on. And Paul came to London and, and generously uh, downloaded uh, on his experience. And when we got Alan out alive on uh, July the 4th, uh, 2007, I made myself a promise that I would repay the, uh, the debt that Paul had, uh, had given me uh, uh, by uh, doing the same. And so that was the start of my uh, association with CPJ. So... Um, when I was in New York, I was president of the, the Leadership Council, uh, which is a, a group of, of supporters and, and, and um, donors. And then uh, they asked me to join the board. Uh, so I sit on the board and I, um, I'm in the process of helping remake the board by, uh, by uh, bringing on uh, a whole load of new members of the board. Um, it was curious to me that um, there were uh, none of the uh, big U.S. networks or uh, the big U.S. newspapers had mm -hmm. people oh, really? on the board, uh, and we, and we've corrected that in the last right. uh, in the last three years. So um, yeah, it's so that's a work in progress. It's, yeah, it's, and it, it's an organization that is now, I get the feeling, needed like more than ever. Um... You're absolutely right. And, and you know, in many ways, um, Donald Trump has been rather good for press freedom. You know, we have increased, oh. uh, you know, in terms of donations, mm. uh, you know, fundraising has gone through the roof. Ah, okay. Because uh, in uh, a, a few years ago, Meryl Streep got up at the Golden Globe Awards and urged people to give money to organizations like CPJ. And we got a million dollars in a week. Um, 
And the following year, the Hollywood Foreign Foreign Press Association, which runs the Golden Globes, uh, uh, split the proceeds between uh, uh, CPJ and and another organization. So um, we've just moved into a new building in uh, in New York. And I uh, I joked that we should call it the Donald J. Trump Press Freedom Center. Um, but, um, uh, uh, you know, we, we know that um, press freedom is one of those uh, causes de jour that, that uh, may not uh, always be so mm. in the public eye once uh, the current occupant of the White House moves on, whether that's in November or in four years time. Mm. Um, but um, you know, you are absolutely right. Uh, yesterday, Reporters Without Borders, one of the other press freedom That's organizations, right. yeah, yeah. We uh, published with them too. its press freedom index. And um, you know, interestingly, Ireland uh, climbed two places from 15 to 13, uh, despite the need for um, an overhaul of its uh, defamation laws. Um, Britain fell two places from 33rd to 35th. Oh, wow. Okay. And, and America also, um, I think America was at 37. So in relative terms, Ireland isn't doing too badly. We're in the middle of unprecedented times at the moment. Um, do you see an end in sight um, for the whole COVID thing? Where do you see the media, where do you see RTE in a year, in five years' time, 10 years' time? Well, I would like to say that I could see five or 10 years hence. I'm not sure. I, I don't think I, I, I honestly couldn't tell you. Mm. Um, there are some big decisions that need to be made about RTE's future. Um, and those decisions need to be made by people outside RTE. Um, uh, I hope that uh, we have demonstrated the value of public service media in the last uh, few weeks. Um, and, but as you, as you said before, you know, RT's financial situation was precarious uh, before mm. uh, the onset of the coronavirus. Uh, it is uh, decidedly worse now. So there are um, short-term issues uh, that are bedeviling RTE. There are also long-term structural issues, and um, uh, those need to be addressed before I think we can talk about mm. five or, or, or ten years. Um, in terms of one year, well, you know, if um, uh, we are going to have physical social distancing. Uh, as a factor in our lives until a vaccine is developed. Mm -hmm. Well, that has very uh, serious implications for how you run a newsroom, for example, um, for audience programs like the Claire Byrne Show. Um, uh, so you know, I, I, I think the jury is, is to some extent still out on uh, what things will look like. Um, I, I suspect they will be a hybrid of uh, how things were before and how things are now. Um, but, and, and while uh, we may not uh, physically stop people coming into the newsroom, so whether they're crews or, or reporters, as mm -hmm. we do now, um, 
I think you know we will continue for some time having every second desk in the newsroom closed uh, in order to make sure that actually uh, nobody is sitting within six feet of anybody else. Okay. Um, one last question. Uh, we were supposed to do this interview originally on Monday um, because of the nature of your business. Uh, very important meeting came up and so we're doing it later in the week. On Tuesday morning, um, Sean O'Rourke uh, announced his yeah. impending resignation um, from Today with Sean O'Rourke on RT Radio 1. Um, so who's going to replace him and when do I start? <laughs> I thought you were going to say, um, I, I was about to say, they'd never have somebody with my accent on the RT Radio 1. So I wasn't you offering can, you, you can, the gig. Come on, you're... You, 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 can you, count, <laughs> you can count me out. You've known um, about it, obviously, because Sean, Sean would have discussed it with you guys, so you would have known about it. So obviously you're planning a replacement. This isn't out of the blue for you guys. Sure. I, I should, say, should say that Sean... Uh, uh, it, you know, his show isn't part of News and Current Affairs. Ah, okay, of, sorry, of I thought Radio it was. One. But, oh, but okay. um, the one thing I would say, Pat, is is um, whoever takes over from Sean uh, has got their work cut out because mm -hmm. Sean is um, forensic, charming, and just the consummate journalist. Um, he is a hack's hack. And... Um, you know, in we talked before about the idiosyncrasies of journalists. Mm. Um, I can think of no uh, higher tribute than to say uh, that he's a hack's hack. Um, Which means, is, uh, well, it, it it means that he has the respect of 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 every journalist mm. for um, just finding stories, getting people to. Um, unburden themselves and uh, and make stories you know his show breaks news every day mm. and uh, that is quite an achievement mm. um and he is uh, a gentleman mm. uh, so he will be um a a huge uh, he will leave a huge hole um but he's a thoroughly nice man and absolutely uh, no i, agree uh, I wish that, him yeah, and yeah. caroline every uh, every year uh, success in the next chapter of their lives. I, I mentioned to him ages ago doing one of these and he kind of went, oh, yeah, 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 whatever. <laughs> in other words, he put me off. <laughs> well, um, he's so, going to have plenty think, of time no, on yeah, exactly. after me. <laughs> That's what I was thinking. And the other thing, of course, is no one's irreplaceable because Sean took over from Pat Kenny. Right. And, you know, every, yeah. I was in uh, the radio building when Pat Kenny's announcement, you know, that he was leaving was made and we were all, you know, jaws just dropped left right and center right. and sean kind of wasn't a name that was being discussed and he came out of left field and and he's made it his own and i think whoever takes over from him will make that show their own and you know just to look uh, whoever it is uh, certainly doesn't need my advice but um uh in the end everybody has to make uh they shouldn't try and be Sean O'Rourke. You know, Agreed. they need yeah. to put their own stamp on it. Yeah, so, yeah. Um, but uh, uh, he is—he uh, is an extraordinary broadcaster, and mm. um, uh, you know, a product of the newsroom. Uh, uh, he would uh, proudly say, having done uh, the news at one and 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 the week in politics for, and, and this week indeed. Uh, but um, he is—he's uh, a pro. 
and he'll be uh, he'll be sorely missed. Mm. On that note, uh, John Williams, Managing Director of RTE News and Current Affairs. Thanks a million for talking to me for this off message. Thanks, Pat. It's been great fun. So thanks again to John for joining me via CleanFeed for this online off-message chat. If you fancy investigating previous episodes, they're all available for streaming or downloading at SoundCloud, Google and Apple Podcasts, and all the other usual suspects. You can subscribe to future Media Savvy off-message podcasts there, or if you sign up via the subscription form on any off-message post over at patamani.ie, you'll also get ahead-of-the-pack notices of equally riveting off-message blog posts. And, of course, you can follow and like Off Message on Twitter and Facebook at Off Message One. As usual, all shares and shout-outs greatly appreciated. Till the next time, I'm Pat O'Mahony, this is Off Message, and thank you for listening. <laughs>